And since everything comes from the capstone of money right down in this entire world system, economics, like Karl Marx said, it was easy for these small cabals to control all of society, all politics, politicians, and everything else that happens in a country. Because everything, if you, it will, you'll get this in the basic, very basic economic lessons at any college or university, they'll tell you that everything in a country, every law in a country, social, criminal, the civil, otherwise, all stem from the economic system. So whoever controls the money system controls the entire nation and its culture and everything else. Quite simple. And we're going to go into more of this when I come back after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, discussing the cabal that started a long, long time ago, following really the works of Plato and others to do with a planned society, an organized planned society, a planned future. And these characters who financed industry, the wars in countries, they profited from all the wars and backed all the wars, actually, and perhaps even instigated them. Because wars were a necessary part of bringing the world together. Because, as Carl Quigley said, Professor Carl Quigley, wars not only are very lucrative to those who back them financially, they have international agreements. There's no losers for the banks. They must pay up whichever country loses or wins. They both pay regardless. But he said it also changes the cultures of both combatants. Since government takes over in a socialism sort of sense, a socialistic sense, uh, all ministries that were belonging to the public people, including agriculture, etc., expand their governmental departments with authority over the public. And eventually they amalgamate. And through every major war, you have amalgamations or empire building until you have world empire. And this again was discussed an awful, awful long time ago, long before the big players came along, the front men, in fact, like the Darwin family, who were put out there by the Royal Society, which was, look at its history, set up as a Freemasonic society chartered by the Crown. And look at its early players and who was put in charge of what and where, etc. Everybody who was everybody was a member of the Royal Society, if a branch in every British Commonwealth nation, by the way. And they planned to bring across a world society. It goes as far back in history, at least uh, admitted to, in the writings of John Dee in the 1500s, and then Bacon 1500s and the 1600s, Sir Francis Bacon. They talked about the creating of a, a country in the West, a new Atlantis, that would basically dominate the world for a time, and we know that the United States was the country that eventually was to be born in the Atlantic, which would have a form of government for the people to believe in, but would secretly be run by experts and scientists even. And that's what we have today. 
very old agenda. And the beginnings of the British Empire and the man who termed, uh, gave that or coined the term the, the British or Brightish Empire was John Dee himself, who was a Rosicrucian, the precursor to Freemasonry, that came out really of the, the Cathar era and the Albigensian era of uh, what became France eventually. And they talked about using this embryonic cluster of countries, the British Empire, that would expand and expand across the globe as a nucleus to form a world empire. They even brought in the term free trade in the 1600s and also most favored nation trading status and his writings you can check it out for yourself and they also said too that they didn't need to, need to base themselves necessarily always in London they could move and use other big countries to do the work for them well, I've said for years that the U.S. was set up to do exactly what it has done, and that's to finish off the job of standardizing the world into a world empire. And as it finishes off the job, it must then submerge into a third world status to merge with what it's created across the planet. that will all be under the same global government, same laws, regulations, etc. We find many of the other specialized branches that were set up to deal with world government, such as the Fabian Society, backed by multi-billionaires of their own time, like the Astor family and many others, were simply a branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. You find the members of one or the members of both. And under the Fabian system, and you can read lots about the Fabian system from many of its authors, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells and others many since. The British Prime Ministers of late have all been Fabian Socialist members dedicated to world government. Karl Marx himself wrote about the trading regions of the world that would be set up in the 1800s. He said that it would start off with a unified Europe followed by a unified Americas including the Caribbean countries and a unified Far Eastern Pacific region. We're never ever told the truth about things, and it's hard to start to explain to a novice even, or even someone, it's even harder to, to explain to someone who's been to university, for instance, in journalism, who think they know it all. But if they can get it at one part of it right and see something for themselves because of their own life experience living through that part of it, there's always hope for them. Canada went through the free trade negotiations in the 80s and 90s. That was the precursor of NAFTA and more important than NAFTA itself because it set up the preambles, the terminology, etc., and how that terminology would be used and interpreted from then on in every further treaty that was made for amalgamation, exactly what the European Union had done itself. Even to the writings of Eisenhower and others of the time, and Hoover, and you'll see that they talked about the need to force Europe to amalgamate during World War II. They talked about this, and afterwards they said they would use the Lend-Lease program to enforce it 
and deals were made with Churchill and others, Churchill was all for it, of course, because that was also his dream, belonging to the same clubs and associations. I've gone over many of the writings of these people before in the past from their own works. But he's a journalist here who I think is young, and so he's got hope. And it's from the, I think it's from the telegraph.co.uk. It's uh, May 28th issue. And his name is James Dingle, or Dellingpole, Dellingpole. He starts off this article talking about a friend he met, an author who's just come out with a book, poo-pooing and decrying his madness, every single conspiracy theory ever invented. So he's having, uh, I guess, a, a dinner with this uh, journalist. And he goes along with it all, too, and he knocks down the Kennedy stuff and everything else, and he's up, he agrees with all this particular journalist. And he says... But he says here now that the, the author of the book to destroy all conspiracy theories is called Aranovich. He says implicit in Aranovich's wonderfully dismissive quip is the assumption that no sane or reasonable person could possibly imagine that the EU was a conspiracy to deprive nation states of their primacy and their people of their power. But that's exactly what the EU is. And this isn't conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy fact. So this, this journalist ha- has got hope. There's hope for this guy. So it had the very charming and clever, generally delightful, but not, in this case, Aranovich properly digested the best, most comprehensive accounts ever written on the EU. It's called The Great Deception by Christopher Booker and Richard North. He would have understood this quite clearly. This is how I summarize their argument in How to Be Right. He says, skip as you please, because the extract's quite long and very depressing, all the more so for being so true. It's true. The truth is depressing. It's the only bit in the book I couldn't manage to make funny because there's nothing funny about the EU. So he says, here goes. Whatever you know about the European Union, it's worse than you think. One reason for our surprising ignorance on so important an issue is that we find it so ineffably boring that no one apart from those involved in the furtherance of the project can be bothered to read the small print. Mainly though it's because secrecy, disinformation and mendacity have been built into the project from the very start. The key thing to understand about the EU is that it it was always meant to be an all-embracing political union, never just an economic one. But what its inventors, notably former cognac salesman Jean Monnet, realized early on was that no rational electorate would allow its country's sovereignty to be abandoned for the sake of some pie-in-the-sky pan-European deal. The whole process of ever-deeper integration, they realized, would have to be conducted by stealth, or as project insiders knowingly call it, engrenage which means gearing, that is, ratcheting up little by little, Fabian style. For many years, Britons resisted the process, but in the bouts of self-doubt which followed the Suez Crisis, the government of a declining post-imperial Britain looked towards the continent, saw it imagined to be the world's new economic powerhouse, and panicked itself into deciding that it must join this mighty trading group at no matter what cost. 
Actually, it was done before that, and, and I hope this journalist goes into his books, because you'll find out, as I say, that they discussed it and agreed to it during World War II when they were setting up the New Deal. The, and the, the, the New Deal basically was um, the land-lend deal. It was uh, uh, loans by the U.S. with ties attached, and one of the ties was they must amalgamate Europe. So he hasn't quite caught up on that yet. And they set up the first bureaucratic departments secretly in every country in the EU in 1948. That's when they went into action before Suez. In order to do so, it had to lie to its people. It had to lie to its people. As early as Harold Macmillan, Britain's political leaders were perfectly well aware that this was far more than just a trading bloc. It was intended to be a supranational organization. Back with more after this break. cutting through the matrix, just discussing how the EU became the EU and correcting some of the mistakes that a journalist has made, although he's on the right track, because he still presumes that it was successive prime ministers after World War II who just found it easier to go along step by step into what they saw was an economic powerhouse. And so he says here, in order to do so as lied to its people as early as Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, Britain's political leaders were perfectly well aware that this was far more than just a train block. It was intended to be a supranational organization which would relieve national governments of much of their powers. But to admit as much they knew would never wash with people as proudly independent as the British. So over the years, European integration has always been sold by successive British governments to their electorate as an economic issue, never as a political one. Rarely in the field of political duplicity as a British Prime Minister lied to his country more blatantly that when Prime Minister Edward Heath told television viewers in January 73, there are some in his country who fear that in going into Europe we shall in some ways sacrifice independence and sovereignty. These fears, I need to hardly say, are completely unjustified. Again, if this journalist was to go into his work uh, and find out more about Mr. Heath, he would find he belonged to some rather interesting organizations to do with complete globalism. He's also a spokesman for Sun Young Moon, believe it or not. He was also set up, uh, along with two other very well-known people, to start off and kick off and get the organization set up for the trading with China. He's still on the board of it yet. They never retire, these guys, never these guys are working for a different agenda. Why would he support Sun Young Moon? Well, what does Sun Young Moon have in common with the agenda, Plato, the Fabianists, etc., uh, the eugenicists, the optimum population trust of today? They all believe in eugenics. And, of course, Sun Young Moon's greatest thing is his teams match up partners and do match, uh, mass weddings with them. They match up their DNA, their family histories, etc., because it's the offspring they want. It's nothing more or less than a eugenics society and organization. Just since 70, when Heath elbowed Britain into the common market with no democratic mandate, the subject had barely been mentioned in his general election campaign. Atis Powell, by the way, that China bloc is, uh, I think it's uh, General Haig, 
all the things you promised would not happen have happened. The key political decisions governing most aspects of our lives, from how much we're paid to how we police our borders, to what is and isn't safe for us to eat, to the way we take our measurements, to how we dispose of our rubbish as garbage, now stem from faceless bureaucrats in Brussels and not from our democratically elected representatives in Westminster. Now, the reason I'm talking about this article is because, you see, since openly, that is, openly, since 19, uh, 2005, I should say, on Canadian news, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the Royal Institute for International Affairs, it's just two names for the same thing, came out on Canadian television with the first open integration treaty signed with Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. And he said there with the president and two prime ministers that this was the first, and by 2010, the last one would be signed for total integration of the Americas. They already, after that year 2005, started to allow top-level bureaucrats in Ottawa, Canada, to apply for jobs inside Washington, D.C. in equivalent positions and vice versa. They've already amalgamated much of our taxation, believe it or not, for imports, exports. They're sharing the, the, the FBI, the CIA, that shares all of its files now with CSIS in Canada. And in the paper recently, we now have the cops on both sides doing patrols deeper and deeper into each other's borders. That's we're integrating completely exactly as the European Union, exactly as Karl Marx said it would happen in that order. That's why I'm mentioning it. We have not to be told the truth about the free trade negotiations, the precursor of NAFTA, until the year 2050. Who said that? Shelley Ann Clark said that. She was a top government bureaucrat who dealt with those negotiations back in the free trade negotiations. She did all the books up. She typed them all up. There were two sets of books. She came out openly afterwards on television on one show in Montreal before she was shut down and said that what's been put on display for the public to see in libraries contains only about a half of what was actually there. The rest is in an underground bunker outside of Ottawa, not to be open for 50 years. That's why I'm talking about this. Everything is done by stealth and lies. And you never tell the truth to the children. The children wouldn't understand what's in their best interest. And what happens to be in your best interest is decided by those who decided that they are fittest to judge what your best interests are. Terminology is of key importance in everything. In these treaties, as they go through the preambles and all of them, that gives you what these characters will use the words and meanings for in their subsequent treaties. You'll think you're reading one thing, it means another thing altogether. I'm going to go through the Economic Union ABC Dictionary in a minute to show you how they do it, because NAFTA is the same. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I am Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix, trying to show you what reality truly is, as opposed to the fiction that's presented to the general population, augmented by lots of fiction under the guise of entertainment, which is just predictive programming. And remember, these sites that I mentioned and these links that I put up will be on my site at the end of the show. You should check into them. This particular one is the EUABC.com. That's the Economic Union ABC, their dictionary that someone's compiled. There's a number of laws, number of laws and other acts. There are now more than 30,000 legal acts in the Economic Union. There are also 10,000 court verdicts and 40,000 international standards, 40,000, all of which must be respected by citizens and companies in the EU. That's a very important part because, remember, in Fabianism, the idea was they can regulate all commerce and all wealthy people, too, eventually, as infiltrate and take over all governments by governmental regulation. That was part of it. H.G. Wells went through all of that in detail in his writings for the Fabian Society, which you can read for yourself. It says, it's very difficult to define the exact number of valid legal acts in the European Union. No institution publishes official tables. Isn't that amazing in this great democracy? Here we assemble numbers from several different sources. This is what we have to do for NAFTA as well. Some acts are legally binding, such as regulations, directives, decisions, and international agreements. Some are not, such as white books, green books, and communications. Recommendations sometimes can have legal effects. Resolutions of the European Council and the European Parliament can be used to understand and give new interpretations to legally binding acts. Verdicts of the EU court can change European law and the interpretation of the treaties, so they can keep reinterpreting what they want as they wish by reinterpreting words, phrases, and so on. Standards from European standards organizations such as CEM, now these are private, right? CENELEC and ETSI can bind member states under treaties, companies and citizens in the same way as regulations. Standards from United Nations specialized bodies, such as Codex Alimentarius for Food, become part of EU law when the EU enters these agreements. It's the same here with Canada, the States, and so on. We've already swallowed that one from the United Nations. So what this public-private organization, you see, making law for the public. Now, the, the UN, remember, is a private organization. Look into it. It's a corporation. It's not a nation-state either. A technical, and by the way, it's not democratic because the public were never given anything to vote for. Never have been. A technical standard referred to in a directive or regulation can be legally binding in the same way as the mother legal act. It says, a standard from Codex Alimentarius permitting hormones in beef must also be respected by countries that have voted against that standard unless the EU chooses to pay a fine to the World Trade Organization, United Nations again, as it did in this case, the UN never wins, because that's the umbrella 
umbrella for this private global system, the World Trade Organization, and the World Bank for that matter, and for the Bank for Economic Development, etc., that every country signed on to under treaty at the end of World War II with the United Nations were paying millions every year through it. Politicians get retired into these jobs for the rest of their lives to deal with this supranational organization, United Nations. A decision by a commission official in the name of and on behalf of the commission is just as binding on member states as treaty articles, quite something, by one official, right? There's no hierarchy of laws in the EU. The number of more or less binding acts is over 80,000 if these different types of acts are counted together. They're doing the same thing with, with the NAFTA right now. This is what they discussed at the summit of the Americas when they give it out to the round tables to put it into wording effect. And it gives you, see the table below and see under democracy, accountability, transparency, and subsidiary for how decisions are made in the EU. In examples of law, we cannot change as voters. You cannot change directives. A directive binds member states to implement its content, leaving it to them to decide how. That's all you can do is how do you implement it. For example, the EU Chemical Directive, REACH, REACH, comes partly into force on July 2009, July 1st, after the European elections, thus a member state is unable to ban a particular chemical on its own, not even if it believes it causes cancer. Only the non-elected commission, the non-elected commission, can propose a change in the relevant EU legislation not a national parliament, parliament, not the European Parliament, not the voters. It's a dictatorship, you see. Environmentalists want to forbid 267 chemicals. The Commission will only investigate seven of them. The 260 unwanted chemicals cannot be banned by voters in any member state by means of any election. This is the new democracy. You better understand it, because there's no democracy at all. Because even if these additives may cause allergies, cancer, etc., diminished fertility, which is the agenda, and hormonal effects. Another example, bisphenol A is forbidden in Canada. They're still using it. Voters in Europe are unable to forbid it. And even worse, the Commission legislates on its own to permit genetically modified maize to be used, even though the great majority of member states do not want it. Positively said, you know, back in the days of bacon, etc., followed on by all the other characters I've mentioned that have taken over the standard down through generations. They say a benevolent dictatorship shall rule. Benevolent dictatorship. You know best, you see. You know best what's for the people. The decisions, these are binding on those to whom they are addressed, not on all EU members or citizens. Recommendations are formally non-binding legal acts. A recommendation from the Commission on the Music Industry has been used to change the market for copyright for authors and composers. The European Parliament was almost unanimous in opposing this recommendation and asked the Commission to withdraw it. Again, it is the non-elected who decide, not the elected. See, the the members of the European Parliament uh, have no powers. Well paid to give the appearance to the people that there's some kind of voice. But... A man from the ex-Soviet bloc 
who's written quite a few books, went, looked at this very, very carefully and said the average member of the European Parliament has about 40 seconds per year time to speak in Parliament. And even if they speak, they have no power to change anything. That's all in the hands of this top secretive executive. And that is what they're bringing in for the Americas. I'll put this link up on my site. There's also a video to do with this, I believe, from Wise Up Journal. I'll put that up as well. Quite the world we live in, isn't it? It's totally different from that which is presented to us by the general media every day with its trivia and its predictive programming of things to come that we understand by osmosis, not by reasoning, and we get it through repetition until that sort of thing happens in your life and you think it's all quite natural. Repetition, exactly as Lord Bertrand Russell said they would use by using massive marketing industries who understood the science of the mind, the Bernays, etc. Now, control freaks, as I say, going way back in time, have written lots of books of, on how this system would be because it all belongs to the same organization with its many specialized branches. And Wells, of all people, in his utopia, modern utopia, went through the fact in the future when they ruled the world, and the world would be a migratory place where the workers would have to travel with permits only from country to country for work and then they'd move on and they'd have no private property. They'd have to check in everywhere and be monitored everywhere they traveled. Those who were unable to work would not travel or they were not needed for work. They would not travel. That's what we're seeing happening right now. It's been happening in the EU for years now with the European papers being full of ads and jobs for the creme de la creme in different fields who can travel when big corporations need them to other countries. The rest are left behind. That is why you're seeing all this nonsense about terrorism set up. It's not to keep you all from moving. It's to allow only the ones who are chosen to move. The new nomads, as Jacques Attali called it, another guy the United Nations, in his book, Winners and Losers in the New World Order, Millennium is the name of the book, planned and written about well over a hundred years ago and at least one book and long before that fat people causing climate change says Sir Jonathan Porritt now what was it Wells also said he says in a near new utopia they'd sterilize all the unfit wouldn't have to just kill them off that'd be too untidy make it some backlash just sterilize them there'd, no, there'd be no flabby people he said no skinny people and weaklings or people with hereditary diseases, they would be eliminated. Adolf Hitler picked up on that and ran with it, and so did the Soviet Union. And here we are in this beautiful world, Soviet, Fabian Socialism, with Sir Jonathan Porritt from Britain, Ottoman Population Trust, etc., etc., private organization, but he's now assigned to government. Who voted him to get assigned to government in Britain? Fat people causing climate change, says Sir Jonathan Porritt. Telegraph. It's from the Telegraph. 3rd of June, 2009. Ugly-looking character to utter control freak. He actually, he might have the swine flu. He's got that appearance of a particular creature. He says he pointed out 
overweight people eat more protein-rich foods such as beef or lamb, which is responsible for producing greenhouse gases, he says. Now remember again, Wells and others, and all the, the, the takeovers from Wells since then to the present, they're all funded by the private foundations, eugenicists, and the bankers because they own the foundations. Said they would eliminate meat-eating. There'd be no meat-eaters in the future. That was also in the book The Third Wave by Alvin Toffler, who was championed by Newt Gingrich, and every congressman in the U.S. was given a copy of that book saying that the world we are bringing in will be vegetarian, and it must be so. So there's a big agenda here. This is not just one man. This is one of many of an army. Echoing the famous slogan, fat is a feminist issue, so Jonathan chair of the Sustainable Development Commission. Sustainable Development. Who came up with that? Mr. Rockefeller and his foundation. This man said fat is a climate change issue. He pointed out overweight people eat more protein-rich foods such as beef or lamb, which is responsible for producing greenhouse gases because of the toxic methane livestock emits. He also said obese people are more likely to use cars than walk or cycle, therefore producing more carbon emissions. I'd like to get a carbon balloon filled with some helium and put Mr. Porritt in it and see how high, how high he can travel before it pops. Perhaps he's skinny enough he'll float down, he won't sink like a stone down to earth and show us how it's done. These are the control freaks that are put up today that in my opinion are far more dangerous they certainly have the same qualities to do dastardly things as any Adolf Hitler or a Stalin. And until we recognize it, we are in big trouble. Big, big trouble. As you target one group after another. Remember what they said? When they came for the communists, there wasn't a communist that left me alone. When they came for the Jew, I wasn't a Jew that left me alone. When they came for the socialist, I wasn't a socialist that left me alone. When they came from the gypsies, etc., etc., when they came for me, there was no one there to protect me. That's how they pick you all off, one at a time, male, female, age groups, etc. This is all-out warfare. And these characters should be kicked off all government boards across the planet. We've had enough dictators in this world and in the history of this world. Yesterday I read an article from Britain that went through the fact that it's really the world's largest police state. And I remember George Orwell writing in his book 1984 about the youth brigade. And here these children in a train good to see the black and white version with Richard Burton and John Hurt in it. Very well, well done. And these children are dressed up in a little scout-type uniform saying we are the children, the children of the future, and how it's going to be. In other words, we're spouting off their indoctrination in the train. And the, the adults are scared of them. Mail Online, it says here, Little brother is watching you. Children of 10 are taught how to spot a terrorist in police DVDs. 3rd of June, 2009. Hundreds of children as young as 10 are being urged to spot potential terrorists and shot them to police. Do you know how much imagination they have at that age? Anybody that appears to them older, crippled, ugly, whatever, is a nasty character. Report them. 
Why do I know this? Because read your history books. It's been done before. Up to 2,000 to attend a safety, a safety event where film will tell pupils that extremist views can develop at school. But critics condemned the initiative as a nightmare extension of the Big Brother state. Concerns were also raised that children could become subject to police monitoring if their fellow pupils misinterpret innocent remarks or play as to create a form of political correctness too, you see, to indoctrinate them even further. The Lancashire police firm uh, film is being shown in Blackburn as part of this long-running streetwise event which includes demonstration on fire safety, water hazards and first aid. A spokesman said the reference to terrorism could encompass any extremist, including animal rights activists, and not just Islamic fundamentalism. He said it's something we need to be aware of across the country. We're not trying to scare anybody. We're just raising awareness. They're not trying to scare anybody. We've had nothing but massive worldwide propaganda about terrorists everywhere since 9-11. And that wasn't by accident. It all happened at the same time. It's the same kind of propaganda organized propaganda, organized treaties, international treaties already signed to go into action on the same thing with the same topics. That was no coincidence. This is part of an agenda. Estella Schmidt, a former a founder of the campaign against criminalizing communities, warned this is a nightmare scenario. No kidding. In George Orwell's 1984, one of the children his next-door neighbor's children just casually says, you're a thought criminal. This five- or six-year-old says, you're a thought criminal. And you see them getting all tense and fearful. That's what they're bringing in to our lives. And we let them. We let them. Back with more after these messages. We're cutting through the matrix, and I've spouted on for almost an hour. It just flies through. So I'll go to the callers now and try to get uh, one or two in. There's Diana from California there on the line. Are there, Diana? Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Um, You were just mentioning 1984, um, that movie, and I saw it, and you're right. It's... It's excellent. It really shows you a lot. I just want to let people know that you can see that on Google Video for free, so you don't have to oh. pay money. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, I didn't know it was up on Google. Yeah, it's in about eight different sections, but you can see the whole thing. Um, I just have a quick question, and then I'll, I'll take the answer off the air. I've been wondering about time. Um, you and Jackie spoke about it just very, very briefly on one of your shows a long time ago, and I got to thinking about all the movies that are out there where, you know, the state jumps back in time and changes things, or there's series out there, etc. And I got to thinking, is that just an allegory of how the elites changed history by yeah. changing the documents, or do they actually have technology no, there's no yeah. technology. Uh, it's quite simple. In fact, Winston Churchill, who was not in on every part of the big agenda, he was for a unified Europe. He wrote up his personal secretary, admitted that it's called the fringes of power by his personal secretary. Churchill wanted a united Europe to come out of World War II. 
but he wasn't in on everything. And when he found out that the, the Lord Milner Society, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, had been writing, and he said this, and I read it on the air from, from Churchill's own quote, he said, it's incredible to think that a small group of very rich people have run the history and written the books, the textbooks for schools, the books for universities, giving a false history of Britain for the last 150 years. He says, that is a, a power that no people should have. So they yeah. constantly go back and they rewrite history and rewrite history and give a, a completely fictitious, and they always hide themselves when they've taken the, the front and anything. They'll put themselves in the background or out of the book altogether so that you don't even suspect they exist. Yeah. Okay. So and that's what Orwell had with his, with his memory hole. Uh, everything suddenly goes down in the memory hole and they give you a new history. Yeah. So there's yeah. no technology that we need to be afraid of for that. No, no. There's a lot of technology to be afraid of, believe you me. But right, it's good. mostly pulsed um, laser weaponry, etc. <laughs> okay. I also wanted to mention um, that 20 years ago, I, I was very unconscious until about two years ago. But about 20 years ago, I happened to be in Germany, and uh, I met a girl, and uh, we were we were watching a Clockwork Orange, and. Yeah. He sat with me and would pause the movie and say, okay, here's where the state is stepping in. It's the parents replacing them, et cetera, et cetera. And she went through piece by piece explaining all these little bits and pieces that you do. But it, it didn't really get tied together, and it just kind of jumbled in my brain, and it sat there for a very, very long time until a couple of weeks ago I remembered it. And so I just wanted to put out there to people when you're talking – you're also planting seeds, whether they're conscious or unconscious right. or want to hear it or not. Mm -hmm. The seed mm -hmm. might sprout. It did sprout. That's me. right. Sometimes uh, it's, it's scattered in your mind. It takes a particular event, but you have a memory to draw from, and then you, you can catch different parts that are scattered and put them together for the first time. You're right. Yeah. That's okay, how it I hear the music. And that's a good movie. It might also be up in Google. That's Clockwork Orange with Roddy McDowell. He did another one, too, about a salesman who shows you the real world and how money really works. Well worth seeing both of them. That ends the show. We'll rush through it again. We'll have never enough time. So from Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.